Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our Lord. Turning to the Gospel of John, I'll be reading the first 15 verses of chapter 6. These are the words of God. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has, fish, uh, who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. That's the reading of God's word. Our God and Father, here we are, gathered around your word again. Open our hearts and minds by your spirit to what is before us. Mold and shape us into willing servants as we consider all you have for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, Kim and I and Nathan were down at uh, Reformation Covenant Church in Oregon City last weekend. Uh, Kim spoke at a ladies' retreat, retreat there, and I tagged along, and they let me preach on Sunday, I mentioned as well, um, and enjoyed fellowship with our daughter and son-in-law. They're down there at that church right now. Um, and uh, sent greetings from, uh, from us to them, and they return those greetings to you up here um, Oregon and Washington have been through an awful lot together the last couple of years, and so we've prayed for one another and stand another, another wonderful, faithful church down there that remained open, stayed to continue to serve its community, and like us, has seen uh, quite a bit of growth. Uh, it's wonderful to go and visit some of these, uh, the, these sister churches. Whenever you travel, if you have a chance to go to another CREC church, I really encourage you to do so. There's much that's the same, but we're not like cookie cutter. There's lots of little differences and uh, I, was, I appreciated their, uh, their order of worship, which is uh, different than ours in, in a number of different ways. Uh, rather than uh, men coming up and leading in prayer, they have uh, prayer requests that are brought in, and then they have what they call the great prayer, where uh, one of the elders leads in all of those prayers, and, and they have a liturgy that's around that. And while I appreciated that, I have to tell you, I am so grateful for the men here who sign up and take time to lead us week after week in corporate prayer. Um, and, uh, and for the elders, for Jeff this morning, I was a little distracted when he was talking, but other than that, um, um, Jeff and the other elders who take the time to, 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 to exhort us as we gather together to pray, um, the, it's, a, it's a really meaningful time for me 
uh, reminds me of the things that are important to pray for for one another, and it's wonderful to be led to pray together for all those things. So I, I just wanted to say thank you. Um, that I noticed that particularly as I, I was down there and then returning here today. Thank you for taking the responsibility as the men in this congregation to lead us in corporate prayer. And those of you who are, are not doing so, we invite you, encourage you to join with us in leading in that way. Well, we're back to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, I'll mention this a little bit later, but between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, probably about six months has gone by at least because we've gone from one feast to another feast, now the Passover feast. Uh, so we've been gone from the Gospel of John for about four, four or five weeks, but, uh, but the events now have taken, or the amount of time between these two events is actually several months that have taken place. And we come here to the second of three Passovers that John will walk us through. You might remember the first Passover is where Jesus uh, kind of got in trouble in the, in the temple, turning over tables and, and cleansing the temple, and then declaring that he was the temple, that if they were to destroy this temple, he would raise it again in three days. And we're also, <clears throat> so this is the second of three Passovers. There'll be a third Passover where actually that will be the time that Jesus is crucified. And we're also in the middle of the seven signs. The book of signs goes through uh, the first 11, 12 chapters in, uh, in, in, the, in the Gospel of John. And as, as we've been going through these, we, we, we're experiencing particular miracles that John is recording. And he says he's recording them so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, and, and we've noticed as we've gone through those miracles um, that there's, there's more to be seen than just the miracle to take place. We come to a real familiar one, one that the children love because there's a kid in the story. And, 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 and we are, we're all familiar with this idea of a, of a young boy who has five small barley loaves and two small fish, and yet everybody is, um, is fed in this, uh, in this event that takes place. Well, this is the fourth of seven signs. Fourth of seven signs. We've seen uh, the, the wine of the, of the water being turned into wine. We've, we've seen the, um, the, the, the healing of the centurion's or the Roman centurion's servant or uh, child um, that was done from a distance by, by the Lord Jesus. And then we saw also um, the man who was healed, the lame man who was healed by the pool of Bethsaida. Now we've come to this fourth sign. And this sign takes place during the, the Jewish Passover. And John makes mention of that not just as a timestamp, but he is going to actually be emphasizing and talking, pressing us to think about that and all that means all through John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is 70 some verses. It's the longest chapter uh, in, in the book of, uh, in the Gospel of John. And we'll be spending quite a bit of time in this and taking a look at this, this picture of Jesus and who he is. Remember, the point is to see who Jesus is. That's why John's written this gospel. And he's writing it to Christians. We need to see who Jesus is and all that it means. So the Jewish Passover was the great national celebration of Israel's deliverance from Egypt by the great prophet and leader Moses. It wasn't just a, a feast to, to gather around, but it was a remembrance that we once were slaves but then that great deliverer was sent by God and we were brought out of slavery and we were given our own land and our own kingdom and our own kings and we were a great nation because of this great work of, of Moses. Now in this gospel, Jesus is declared to be the Lamb of God. 
particularly in this gospel, we see Jesus as being pointed to as the Lamb of God. Uh, John the Baptist declares him back in chapter 1, verse 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, Passover was that feast celebrating the angel of death passing over homes that had been marked with the blood of a sacrificial lamb. At the last Passover that was mentioned in John, Jesus was in Jerusalem where he cleansed the temple and then declared that he would destroy the temple and raise it again in three days, all of which caused quite a stir and particularly among the religious elite who had control of the money, who had control of the money changers, who were making quite a profit on, on, on the way they were handling the feast days all of which then caused this, them to be quite concerned as this growing group of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ is, um, is, is growing. People are turning from John the Baptist as John is pointing them to Christ, and, and now Jesus is, is, is getting a growing and growing following. They're concerned. This time he's far from Jerusalem, up around the Sea of Galilee. Chapter 7 will tell us that he's doing so because he's concerned that he would be arrested if he was back down in Jerusalem at that time. So he's up now in Galilee. He's been ministering for weeks or months up there. And, um, and he, is where, he is where a great multitude is continually following him. In chapter 1, verses, in verse 2, it says, Then a great multitude followed him. Really, it should be translated that a great multitude was continually ongoing following him. They're, they're, they're going up. You're supposed to have this sense of wherever he goes, they keep coming. And, and, and it keeps growing. It keeps getting larger and larger. Throughout chapter 6, then, I want you to watch for how much Jesus is replaying the life and signs of Moses of what the Passover pointed to, of what the promise of release and deliverance was, was pointing to, and who Moses was. And remember, if you, if you have your Bibles open, remember the, the last two verses of chapter 5, where Jesus said, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now that's going to come into play here in this chapter as well. The miracle of feeding this huge gathering is stunning in itself. It is a great Bible story. It is a great children's Bible story. But remember, these signs are given to be understood to see something far greater in such a way as to grant and strengthen our faith in Jesus as the Son of God. And so my job this morning, my goal this morning is to take you beyond the simple story that you already know and to see a little bit more of what's going on in the text, in the chapter, and see if you are, if our eyes are opened in a greater way to who Jesus Christ is proclaiming himself to be and why that matters. So here's an overview, just to, just to get it in our minds again. It's about six months after the events of chapter 5, and Jesus heads east, away from the Jewish portion of Galilee. He's probably wandering, walking along the, along the sea, but he's moving along that Sea of Galilee, which has also been uh, now called the Sea of Tiberias because Herod had uh, created a city um, on, on, on the western side, and he had, he, had given, uh, the, he had given credit to the Caesar, to Caesar Tiberius at the time. And, and so now that sea had also been referred to, at least a portion of it, as the Sea of Tiberias as well. We're getting a sense of where Jesus is with that. Um, however, a great multitude was continually following him because of the signs that he had seen, in verse 2. In the parallel gospel accounts, in, um, in the synoptics, um, this, this uh, sign, by the way, this miracle is the only miracle except for the resurrection that shows up in all four gospels. 
Okay, so there must be something important about it. Now, in the other Gospels, one of the things that also happens um, is that this, is, uh, this is, comes on the heels of hearing that Herod, the, um, I'm sorry, that Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. And so Jesus is actually seeking to go away off into the wilderness by himself, and the crowds keep following him wherever he goes. He goes up into a hill, it says, and he sat with his disciples in verse 3. The time is near Passover, we are told, and Jesus sees the great multitude coming toward him. He tests Philip, asking him how to feed this large crowd, verses 5 and 6. But he knows that he's testing Philip. And Philip replies that eight months of wages would not begin to feed such a crowd. So a 200 denarii would be, um, a denarii would be a, a labor man's wage for the day. The basic, um, basic wage for a, a kind of a minimum wage worker for a day's wage would be a denarii. Denarius. 200 denarii would be about eight, eight months then of, of income. He says, even if we had eight months, there would only be enough to give a, a few. So Jesus tells, uh, and then Andrew brings a lad with five barley loaves and two small fish. That looks like a, a work of faith, except then he says, but what is that? That's not going to help at all, is it? Andrew brings, uh, see, Jesus tells the disciples to make the people sit down. Um, in your translation, it, may say, it says, make the people sit down. But again, there's this idea of what he does is he, he instructs the disciples to, um, to have them gathered together and, and he sits them down. He gives them a place to rest. So he, he does that and he, um, on, on a grass hill, and that we are told there are about 5,000. Um, there's 5,000, we're told in the other Gospels, there was 5,000 men. It was, it was usual to kind of count a crowd like that by households, by how many families were there or households. So it's 500 men, 5,000 men. And we're told in the other Gospels, al along with men, uh, women and children. So there could have been 10,000 or 12,000 or, or uh, quite a bit more than just the 5,000 that were there. So now Jesus took the loaves, he gives thanks, and through the disciples distributes the loaves and fish, and they were able to give everyone as much as they wanted. Verse 11 emphasizes that they give to each one as much as they wanted. When they were filled, the disciples gathered up the 12 baskets of fragments left over. 5,000 people are filled, are, are filled they get as much as they want. When they're done, they gather up what's left over, and lo and behold, there are 12 baskets full. Why, why would he note that? Twelve baskets full. So, those who saw this declared, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 14, you might notice in, the, in your Bible that that word prophet is capitalized. There's a reason for that. We'll talk about that. And Jesus, perceiving that this, this crowd was about to come and take him by force to make him king, departs. Verse 15. He departs. Sometimes, uh, the, the, sometimes the sections here get broken down in chapter, and verse 15 is, looks like it's the beginning of a new section. I think it's really part of this story. It's the ending of this particular story. Who is this promised prophet? Well, what this passage first teaches is that these events led the people to believe that a new Moses, even a greater Moses, was now among them. Moses was that great deliverer, and he was a great patriot. So, so Moses was not just somebody in their minds who was this great religious leader who brought them to God. Moses was a patriot who delivered them from, from Pharaoh, who delivered them um, and, and their people from the, uh, from the, from the uh, slavery that they had under Pharaoh, brought them out into freedom. And they are seeing that this Jesus 
might just be that prophet that was promised, that Moses had promised in Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, the Lord says this, Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them to them all that I command him. Now, in the, in the history of Israel, there were many times that they hoped for such a deliverer would come. And there were some other deliverers that did come, of course. But, um, but there was a particularly in this, in this century, this time, this first century, there was all kinds of talks about these Christs, these messiahs who were rising up, who were going to deliver the people. There were zealots, groups of zealots that were gathering together and were looking to, to do some kind of an insurrection against the Roman controlled areas of Jerusalem and Judah, uh, in Judea and, and take back their land. They were hoping that God might might be doing this, might be raising this up. Now you have Jesus, who's got this group of people following him, and he's doing all kinds of signs and wonders like Moses had done. Who is this Jesus? Could he possibly be that great deliverer? And they were correct, actually, to believe so. He was that great deliverer of, of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Because, and we know this because after the resurrection, both Peter and Stephen would testify exactly to that truth. In, in Acts chapter 3, Peter would testify that Jesus was that great prophet that God had promised. And Peter, uh, Stephen, and in his great testimony before his martyrdom, um, says the same thing. Jesus is that prophet that Moses had promised. Jesus had led them, think about this for a second. Jesus had led them along a sea and had gone up onto a mountain and he was now sitting with his disciples, presumably teaching them on a mountain, receiving, giving the law on a mountain. The people had followed along, but then realized that they were without food. And then like Moses, with the people wandering in the wilderness, Jesus provided miraculous bread that fed them all. Later, Jesus would explain this in greater fashion. He, uh, later on in, in uh, chapter 6, he'll, he'll, he will explain this. Just to give you a, a touch of it, look at verse 32 in chapter 6. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus begins to make those connections explicitly later on. Right here, we see all of these other kind of parallels of what's going on. There's also this uh, picture of the good shepherd, isn't there, right in front of us. There's, there's the sign of the good shepherd, which will be, de will be uh, developed later in the Gospel of John. Jesus has the people sit down in the green grass. It's Passover, it's spring, and the grass is growing um, um, heavy over the, what would be today called the Golan Heights. And the grass would grow green and heavy over that time. It would later on dry out. But at that time of year, there'd be much grass, and he has them go and sit down in this green grass, and he feeds them like a good shepherd. Now, with all those motifs in your mind, all, all that I just brought out to you, I want you to listen again to that psalm you know so well. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. They're, they're filled, completely filled. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul, this hope that maybe we're going to see finally a deliverance. 
He leads me in the paths of righteousness, instructing me on the mountain for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Right here in public, 5,000 men strong, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What would have happened if they had sung that psalm on that hill? And maybe very certainly they did. This is even made more clear in Matthew and Mark's account, where Jesus is contrasted with Herod, who, as I mentioned, at a feast had John the Baptist beheaded and served on a platter while Jesus feeds the multitude. In both Matthew and Mark, um, the, the writers lay this contrast out very obviously. John is having a feast. He has, in the midst of that feast, he has John the Baptist's head delivered on a platter. The very next scene is Jesus taking bread and fish, blessing and feeding his flock. A tyrant devours his people, and a true king feeds his people. Moses was a deliverer and a provider, a good shepherd, but Jesus was greater. The manna provided daily needs. Jesus provided as much as they wanted with 12 baskets left over. Why 12? Was it to point out that Jesus provided all that was needed for all of Israel, the 12 tribes, that he was there to provide for all 12 tribes? Was it to point out that the 12 disciples had all they needed from Jesus to serve his flock and more? Maybe the answer is yes. In fact, it was a, a, a custom to uh, gather together at a, at a large feast, to, to gather together all the remaining portions of the food, and then serve, then you would give the, the leftovers to the servants, to the slaves. And so the slaves would get the leftovers. The 12 disciples are getting the leftovers. They are the slaves of the Lord Jesus. They are the servants of the Lord Jesus. And there's enough that Jesus gives enough to all of them to provide for all that they will need. How much of this is, is just being pictured out in these images here that John wants us to see? And what was the test that Jesus gave to Philip? Look back at verse 5 and 6. Again, Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this Jesus said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. He's going to test Philip. Was it to teach the disciples and all disciples that he would provide to those who serve on his behalf all that they need? Or was it a test to test Philip in that moment as to who Philip really believed Jesus was? It almost seems like there's two tests going on here. First, do you, do you test, do you, do you trust that, through, that I'm going to be able to provide what you need to serve? But maybe more importantly, do you know who I am? Philip, do you know who I am and what I'm going to do? See, Philip, had, had, we, we saw in chapter 1, Philip um, believes and is following Jesus as a disciple, but he, does he really know who Christ is and what he's going to do? Do we really know who Christ is and what he is going to do? In fact, what he is doing, right? Oftentimes, maybe we are too caught up in whatever our per particular needs are that we have for the moment that we need Jesus to take care of, sure and good, but... Do we realize who we are going before and asking? Do we realize who he is and what he's doing? What does it mean that he is the son of God? 
maybe that might be far more that is going on, that Jesus wants Philip to watch what I'm going to do now. Not just, how I pro not just that I provide, but how I provide. He tests Philip. What's interesting is that the word test can be translated from the Greek, test or tempt. It's the same word, same word in Greek. And um, God, we're told, never tempts us. James chapter 1, verse 13. But the same word translated differently because God does test us. He does test us. He does not tempt us. Our faith is tested so that our faith may be perfected. Jesus is testing Philip to perfect his faith. I want you to see who I am. James would say, count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But patience, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect or mature. That you may be mature, filled up, completed in your understanding, lacking nothing. Likewise, tribulations are the work of God to strengthen our hope through the loving work of the Holy Spirit through those trials. The disciples might have felt a little bit of trial when all of these people are around them and there's nowhere to, to, there's no way to feed them. In another account, they want to send the people away because it's getting dark and they need to feed, they, these, these, these people need to get some food. They're feeling some sense of responsibility. Well, that's what happens with us when, when we have trials or sufferings. We, we need these things taken care of. And, you know, why didn't God, why didn't Jesus just say, um, well, don't worry about it. I've got plenty here for you. Watch, watch what I'm going to do. And instead, he leaves this time of testing. He leaves this time of going through a trial. Romans chapter 5 we are told, but we are to glory. We also glory in trials and tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Tribulations test our perseverance. They make our perseverance greater, stronger. They show forth that, that God is at work in us to, to trust in Him harder and longer than we ever thought we could. That's why he brings these tribulations and trials into our lives. And he says that they produce perseverance and character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we learn to, we learn to look straight on at troubles too big for us to solve. But we learn to look at them and to face them while keeping our eyes fixed on the one who provides all things. We're in the middle of a trial, we're in the middle of, a, uh, of, of some kind of suffering, some kind of difficulty, and we are instructed, we, are instruct, we should hear the words of Jesus, something like this, um, something like, uh, do, do you, uh, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? It's like Jesus could have said, what are we going to do? I, mean, I, don't, I don't know the tone that he used. Oh my heavens, what are we going to do? Which may have been exactly what was on Philip's mind. Can you, can you imagine, you, you're, you're going through some kind of trial, some kind of difficulty, and, and, and all of a sudden you realize Jesus is right there with you, and you think, great. And then Jesus says, what are we going to do? Which is what is on your mind. I was going to ask you that, Lord. Right? And so what happens during that time of tribulation, that testing? You look through the test, you don't, you don't ignore it, it's a real problem. But you look to the one who, who you know is actually testing you. 
who wants to take you through the trial, through the suffering, and he has an end in mind. He has a goal in mind. And he often doesn't tell you what that end or goal is. Some of those tests, some of those trials, you must endure your entire life. And you have to hear the voice of God who says things like this. I want you to sit down now in this green grass and I'm going to feed you and care for you. I may not take care of that particular trial, that particular suffering, but I am with you. I have answers. I've shown you who I am. Haven't you read the Gospel of John? I've shown you who I am. Haven't you meditated on the Gospel of John? That's what's going on. But of course, something else is, I think is going on too that's worthwhile seeing in, in, this, in this passage here. It's Passover. It's Passover. And gr a greater and more hopeful celebration of an old deliverance with the anticipation of a greater deliverance. Some would have said that it was a greater celebration than an American Fourth of July. It was a national celebration of independence. It was a national celebration of deliverance. A huge multitude has gathered around this leader. Why is this important? There's 5,000 men. 5,000 is one of the standard measures of a Roman legion. There's a Roman legion, the size of a Roman legion, of followers of a Messiah, a deliverer. What hope might that bring you if you were there under the oppression of the Romans with the corrupt officials through Herod and, and others tied to him? What hope might that bring you with the promises that had been given from the scriptures? Huh, is this greater than Moses? He's not rebuking them at all. Notice this, it's Passover, and he's not rebuking them for, for not being in Jerusalem. In fact, he's not even in Jerusalem. You're supposed to go to Jerusalem. If you're going to be faithful to God, you go to Jerusalem for the Passover. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. <laughs> he's claimed that he is the new temple, and that means when you are with him, you are with God. So, so they're not disobeying. They have gone to God. They have gone to the Savior. They've gone into the presence of God by being with Jesus. Jesus is not concerned that they're not down in Jerusalem. The Jewish revolutionaries would have loved this setting. They would have loved seeing Jesus doing these things, challenging the elites of Jewish rule and the Romans and watching his following swell. And so they say, in verse, in verse 15, he says, well, first of all, verse 14, they say, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. That's him. That's him. And Jesus slips out under their hands and scurries off into the wilderness. We're not told how. He gets out of there. Verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Is there something for us here? Make him king. Let's make him king. We already learned that Jesus knew what was in the heart of man back in John chapter 2. It said when he was in Jerusalem at the first Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. They wanted to make him king for their purposes. They wanted to follow him for their ends. 
And they wanted to be the ones to make him king. They wanted to be the ones, we make you king. <laughs> but we don't make Jesus king and Lord. And he doesn't become king according to our purposes and ends. He is not our genie in a bottle. So we, we, we talk about asking Jesus into our heart like asking, genie, uh, asking a genie into our bottle that we can rub and we get now three of our favorite wishes. And that is not who Jesus is. That is not who Jesus is. The devil had tried to tempt Jesus with the promise to make him king as well. Back in Matthew chapter 4, the devil takes him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all the glory of those kingdoms. And, and the devil said to him, all these things I will give you. You can be king of all of it if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus would not be made king on the devil's terms. But maybe here's more importantly, Jesus will not be made king on your terms either. He didn't intend to receive the kingdoms of this world from the devil. He didn't intend to take the kingdoms, or I'm sorry, what he did intend to do is to take the kingdoms of this world from the devil. Matthew chapter 12, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. That was Jesus' plan. I'm going into the house, this world, and I'm binding the strong man, and I'm casting him out from his appointed place of rule and reign, and I'm taking goods, his goods. That would be you and me. That's what I'm doing. Um, Jesus says when Peter makes this proclamation of that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says, and upon that statement, Peter, that's the rock. You are the rock. You represent the, the, the very rock of the church. And upon that, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We are going, against, we are going to the gates of Hades. We're knocking it down and we're taking out all of the devil's goods. That's what he's talking about doing. Revelation 1.18, Jesus, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. This is what Jesus came to do. This is who Jesus is. He's not asking you to make him Lord and King. He's not asking. He is Lord and King. He is Lord and King. He didn't intend for his kingdom to triumph by beating his enemy in guerrilla and siege warfare. And that's what gets us all mixed up. How did he come and make himself king? By dying on a cross and rising from the dead. He would not go to Jerusalem to wield the spear, but to receive the spear, thrust and bear the judgment. And that would be his triumph. It mixes with us. It messes with us, doesn't it? How does Jesus become king? How is it that he is the ruler of all the world? Now as the Son of God and the Son of Man. By submitting to the Father's will and by suffering, by suffering death on a cross, dead and buried, and then being raised from the dead. And so Jesus, what we were to see here is, you know, we see Jesus do something amazing or you hear something amazing about Christ and you think, I, I'm, I want to make Jesus king. He'd be able to take care of all my problems over here. And the truth of the matter is he can't, could. I just don't know if he will. He might want those problems in your life. 
That they might be things that he wants to use to build up your perseverance and your faith. Because you know what? Jesus is king and Jesus has his agenda, not yours. Jesus is king and has, he has his agenda and not yours. And here's what you have to decide. Is his agenda better than yours? And do you see, if you, if you dare to say no, <laughs> and we all do, we all do this. If you dare to say, no, my agenda is better than Jesus' agenda, then I have another question for you. Who is your God? Who actually is your Lord and King then? And it shows. Jesus won't let that happen to these people. And he won't let it happen to you, so he withdraws. You go to make him king, you go to make him do what you want him to do, and he withdraws. I will be king on my terms. I'm not king on your terms. So, Jesus will not be king so that you can get your way. He does not belong to you. You belong to him. And when we try to use him to promote our plan or our dream or our desires, he will withdraw. There are, in fact, times where his mission will look very different than yours. And as his subjects, we are to conform ourselves to his will, like the 12 disciples who've been given the 12 baskets full. They have all that they need. You've been given all that you need as a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus would say to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and his agenda, take up his cross, and follow me. But there's one more thing to see in this passage. Not only is he king and, and declared to be king on his own and will not be forced to, into a lordship based on someone else's agenda, but we also see in the midst of that the 12 full baskets. We see in the midst of that the 5,000 and the 10,000 or however many fed as much as they want. We see his compassionate and excessive grace. That's his agenda. At the same time, so we are to behold this sovereign king in that. He sees the need and overwhelmingly supplies. Paul would write, Philippians 4, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Jesus knew this of His Father, and so He took one of the small barley loaves. Barley was the, probably the grain of the cheapest, the meanest bread. He takes the small barley loaf, and He gives thanks. Jesus gave thanks. Do you give thanks for your daily bread? Do you give thanks for the daily supply? He said, I'll supply all your needs. We're warned, we are warned that idolatry and unbelief follow the lack of giving thanks to God for all of his gifts. In Romans 1.21, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. But all I got is one small barley loaf. He has one small barley loaf. Jesus says, okay, so he's got five over here and two small fish. And what does Jesus do? He gives thanks. Because he knows that God supplies all of our needs. And we're warned, if we are not giving thanks in the things that we have been given, and oh, have we been given so much. If we do not give thanks to God for those things, we fall into idolatry. We become our own gods. We fall away from worshiping and giving glory to God. 
we actually end up whining and complaining about an awful lot of things, completely missing all that we have been given. The gifts of God are so easy to take while forgetting that He was the one that gave them to us. We consume the gift without thankful hearts, and soon the gift becomes hollow, for we have forgotten the giver. Our culture lives in this way, more opulent and wealthy than ever in the history of mankind, yet empty and aching more than ever in loneliness, anxiety, fear, and despair. How is it that we have a nation with more wealth than the world has ever, ever had, and more people taking anti-anxiety medicine than ever before? How is that possible? The answer is idolatry and the lack of giving thanks. Ungrateful hearts are empty hearts, and empty hearts are homes for devils. Ungrateful hearts are empty hearts, and empty hearts are homes for devils. But you, this morning, are on a mountain. Did you know that? You have come to the mountain. You've come to the mountain of the Lord. This is the Lord's day. You've confessed your sins. You've confessed your shortcomings. He's come, he said, come. I have more for you than you could ever want. By His Word and His Spirit, by His Word preached by our time at this table, I have more than you ever, ever could need. I will care for you all the days of your life and you will live with me forever if you come to me in faith. You've come to that mountain. You've come to that, a greater mountain than they went to, into a, into a more real presence of the very presence of that Jesus, who is King and Lord now. He was going to become King and Lord then. He is King and Lord now. You come to that mountain, this Lord's Day, you've been told to come and sit. Look at you, you're sitting, and you're hearing His Word, and you're going to come to the table, and He's going to feed you His body, broken, for all the people, millions and millions and millions for centuries, He feeds at a table called the Eucharist, the table of thanksgiving. You're right here. He's filling you right here. He's meeting your needs right now. He's meeting your needs right now with compassion and excessive grace. That's why he's gathered you here. That's why you are here this morning. Join with Jesus then. Join with Jesus in giving thanks to the Father for the smallest gifts and watch him multiply those gifts. Give thanks and live thankful lives for your eternal life, this eternal life that He's been given in Jesus, and watch Him multiply that life with fruitfulness to His glory. Because He is the great Deliverer. He is the greater Moses. He is the great Savior. He is the great Shepherd. He is the great King. He is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And He is yours because He has come and taken you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, full of grace, sovereign over every aspect of our lives, confirm these words by your Spirit into the hearts of these brothers and sisters who need to know, to see, to taste your presence daily in their lives, the presence of a good and great shepherd, a greater deliverer, and the very living God. Do so in Jesus' name. Amen.